Well, good morning. If you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. I just wanted to uh, echo a little bit of what Jacob said and, and just thank you for uh, welcoming us back. Uh, last time we didn't have our baby with us, so it's a joy to be here with you all and, and uh, introduce you to Rowan. If you haven't met him, he's generally pretty smiley and happy, so uh, I'd encourage you to introduce yourself. We also have with us one of Bridget's longtime friends. Her name's Brianna Morrow. Sorry, Brianna. Um, she's also a joy to be around, and it's so sweet to have her with us. So if you haven't met her, she came all the way from Indiana just to see the mountains of Leavenworth. So, And I have one disclaimer before we begin. Uh, Dave asked me if I could come preach on December 19th, a couple months ago, I think. And I was already thinking about this passage in my own life, and so it just made sense to go ahead and preach on this passage. And then I realized that this is the Sunday before Christmas. And so if you're expecting a Christmas sermon, you're probably going to be very disappointed. But if you're tired of Christmas and you don't want to hear more Christmas things, then you might be delightfully surprised. Well, it's no secret that the last two years have been uh, difficult. And for most of us, uh, it's, been a, it's been a rough go. And whether it's been at an international, national, or just a local level, we've seen a whole lot of anger, hatred, fear, confusion, lying, disunity, violence, and a whole host of other things. And sadly, the church has not been immune to such behavior. And in the midst of all this brokenness and pain, I've been finding myself asking, what does the world need to see from the church? Have you ever asked yourself a similar question? If there are so many people hurting and angry and searching for real lasting solutions, what do they need to see from the church? How do we as followers of Christ live in a way that shows the hope of the gospel. If Christ said his people are to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world, how is the church supposed to be salty or light-giving? Or more specifically, what does Leavenworth need to see from Cornerstone Church? Or what does Spokane need to see from Faith Bible Church and Trinity Church and other like-minded churches? Well, in answer to that question, what does the world need to see from the church, some have turned to creating churches uh, church services and cultures that are happy and lighthearted. Amidst all the pain, let's just be happy and joyful and lighthearted people. But these services and cultures seem to almost overstate the victory we have in Christ while ignoring the pain and the brokenness of the world. I'm not saying that we shouldn't celebrate the victory of Christ, but sometimes it focuses too much on, on the hope that we have that, that may not be fully realized today. Sometimes it feels like we're slapping a band-aid on a broken bone. It just doesn't get to the root of the problem. And I can't help but think this light-hearted, happy, and sometimes chipper culture seems to ignore the reality of people's lives. We've watched communities and churches torn apart by division and disunity. We've seen people broken by the effects of isolation and loneliness. We've seen and heard attitudes and language of complete disrespect and disregard for the fact that our fellow human beings are image bearers of God. And the solution to this problem is to create a happy and light-hearted culture. And you might be wondering, well, do you think we should just create these somber, morose, uh, depressive, melancholy cultures? No, that's not the answer at all. You see, when I first came across this passage almost 10 years ago, I felt burdened by sorrow. I don't remember the exact circumstances of my life, but I remember thinking, if Christ has saved me from my sin and given me eternal life, shouldn't I feel more joyful? 
And I couldn't help but think, wouldn't it be more useful if I was more filled by joy and less burdened by sorrow? I was worried that my sorrow would hinder the hope of the gospel. Like here I am proclaiming the hope of the gospel while I still feel burdened by sorrow. And I wanted to know what place does sorrow have in my life as a believer. And when I came across 2 Corinthians chapter 6, I found a beautiful truth that was so freeing and life-giving. And in this passage, Paul is describing how he and those in his ministry have lived to remove obstacles to the gospel. In Paul's own, Paul's own words, he describes how he has commended himself and his ministry in every way to everyone. And his solution is surprising. Paul tells us that the world needs to see our joy in the midst of our sorrow. The world needs to see that our joy is unconquerable even in suffering and sorrow. The solution isn't to ignore the suffering of the world by creating a happy culture that is ignorant of those problems. And at the same time, the solution isn't creating a morose and somber or melancholy culture that's just focused on the brokenness of the world and focused on solutions to the brokenness of the world. What the world needs to see from the church is our unceasing and unconquerable, unconquerable joy in the midst of sorrow. Not after, not after our circumstances have changed, but in the midst of our sorrow. Now hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that we need to strike a middle ground. Like there's sorrow on this side and there's joy on this side and we just try to find the middle ground. That's not the answer. And if, if you think about it, most of us, we, we try to strike a middle ground and then we end up in numbness or apathy and our emotions turn tepid and cold and we wonder why we're dry. One pastor states, the world doesn't need to see your pain and they don't need to see your painless joy. And what he means is the world needs to see a church that can rejoice in all circumstances, even as we experience grief and sorrow that is very real in this life. So let's go ahead and read this passage. And as I read it, ask yourself, how is Paul commending himself and his ministry? How is Paul removing obstacles that may cause some to doubt Paul and the gospel? We're going to set a little bit of context, so I'm going to start reading in uh, chapter 5, verse 17, and we'll read down through 6, verse 10. Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you, and in, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found in our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. By great endurance in afflictions, in hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, 
by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as, di- as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Now at first reading, it might seem like Paul isn't removing obstacles at all. In fact, when you, you first read this, it almost seems like Paul's just creating speed bump after speed bump on the way to the gospel. Like if we want to convince someone to follow Jesus, why are we mentioning, mentioning beatings, imprisonments, sleepless nights, and hunger? I don't know about you, but beatings aren't very enticing to me. So what is Paul doing here? How is he commending his ministry to those who are watching him? Well, like we saw in chapter 5, verse 20, Paul says he's an ambassador for Christ. An ambassador is someone who represents their home nation to a foreign nation. They represent the culture and, and the values of their home nation. And so Paul is saying he's representing Christ to the world. He's representing Christ to a foreign nation. And he's working to commend himself and his ministry to the world. But how is he removing obstacles to the people receiving him in the message of the gospel? Well, many people in the, in the Corinthian church were starting to doubt Paul. False teachers had entered in, and their lives seemed to be glorious. They were preaching a false gospel, and they were being rewarded for it. They had nice things. They had a lot of possessions. People liked them. People were following them. Meanwhile, Paul's getting beat. He's getting dragged through cities. He's poor. He's shipwrecked. And when you look at the two, you say, Paul's not very glorious, and these false teachers seem to have a lot of glory. So people started to doubt his message. Paul's life looked anything but glorious. But let's look at how Paul displays the hope of the gospel to the watching world. First, Paul will describe what he has suffered and what he's endured as an ambassador of Christ. Second, Paul describes the character that his suffering has produced in his life. And then Paul finishes this section by describing paradoxes of the Christian life that define his life and his ministry. So first, Paul describes his suffering uh, in verses 4 through 5. He says, By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, and hunger. Now, suffering in itself isn't commending Paul's ministry here. It's not that the suffering is doing something to commend the ministry. The point that Paul is making is that if he's to represent Christ, his life is going to look like Christ. And you remember, they crucified Christ. And he's reminding them of that. Christ died at the hands of the, of the world. And Paul is also suffering at the hands of the world. To follow Christ means to take up his cross and bear it. Paul suffers in this world because Christ suffered in this world. And so his, his suffering should not be shocking to us. Our suffering should not be shocking to us when we suffer at the hands of the world. And that's what Paul's doing. As a representative of Christ, he shares in Christ's suffering. But notice the the little modifier that Paul gives at the beginning of that section. He says, by great endurance in, and then lists these sufferings. Paul's suffering is marked by perseverance, by great perseverance. He doesn't give up. He doesn't grow discouraged. He keeps going. And that leads us into the second section. Paul describes his character. 
He says, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. So Paul says, this is my suffering, and this is what my suffering has produced. His suffering has produced godly character in his life. And just look at the world over the last couple years. Has COVID, has political unrest, ethnic prejudice, and all the other events of the last few years, has that produced purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, genuine love, or truthful speech? No. It's produced the exact opposite of those things. And why is that? How can Paul endure all this suffering and his character is, is growing, is being built up? Well, I hope you notice that he highlights the Holy Spirit and the power of God. Weapons for the right hand and the left, which is the shield of faith and the Word of God, likely. He's not on his own. The Holy Spirit is working in and through his suffering to produce this character. He's not merely conjuring this behavior in light of all the suffering. He's pressing into the Spirit. He's pressing into the Word of God. And God is creating this character in him. So Paul's character in his suffering proves to those watching him that God is indeed at work in him. That though it might look like he's left alone, God is with him and is producing holiness in his life. So how have, how have we responded to the sufferings of the last two years? Because we have suffered. Have you become bitter and angry or resentful? Or can you say your character is being built like Paul as you press into the Spirit? For many of us, there's, there's a bit of both. We can see growth in some areas and we can see bitterness in other areas. But we keep pressing on and we keep pressing into the Spirit as He works in our lives to kind of refine us and produce that character. And then that leads us into the last section. Paul lists these paradoxes of the Christian life that define his life. He says, We are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well known, as, di- as dying and behold we live, as punished yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. So we have to ask ourselves, what is Paul doing here? He has these two kind of contrasting statements. Is he saying, the world thinks that I'm unknown, but in reality, I'm actually well-known? Is that what he's doing? Is he saying, this, the first statement's untrue, the second statement's true? And if you read it that way, it, it, it's tough because Paul is being punished. Paul is poor. Paul doesn't have a lot of things. I think what Paul is saying here is that while these might appear to be true, it's not the whole truth. Let's look at it that way, in that light. Paul says he's unknown, and yet he's well-known. Paul's going throughout the Roman Empire declaring the gospel of Christ. He's not some some world-renowned speaker. He's just going around to different churches, different cities proclaiming the gospel. And yet he knows that he's known by God, and he, uh, yeah, that God is in him and working through his ministry. He says he's dying, and yet behold, we live. Earlier in 2 Corinthians, he says, our outer man is being destroyed. He feels death at the doorstep constantly. And yet he sees the hope of the resurrection of Christ. And he says, while it might look that I'm, like I'm dying, I live. He says he's punished and yet not killed. Paul was beaten and imprisoned. 
He was punished by the Roman Empire. He's punished by the Jewish, Jewish synagogues. But he's not, he's not out of it. He keeps pressing on. He says he's sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. His circumstances looked very sorrowful. They looked very bleak for Paul. And yet he says that's not the whole truth. And we'll look at this a little bit later, but there were many reasons for Paul to grieve in his heart. And yet there were many reasons for Paul to rejoice. And both of those existed at the same time in his life. Paul says he's poor, yet making many rich. Paul didn't have much. He made some tents. He didn't make a lot of money. And yet he was making people rich through the gospel of Christ. He didn't possess much. And yet he possessed everything through Christ. And the reason why I want to focus in on this idea of sorrowful yet always rejoicing is this is a theme of Paul's ministry and experience. If you read the New Testament, you see this in his writings. There was much that caused sorrow and grief in Paul's life, but still Paul had every reason to rejoice. And likewise, we all have sorrows. We don't have to ask for sorrow. We don't have to conjure up grief. That comes naturally. For most of us, we experience grief almost daily. But what isn't natural is to rejoice in the midst of our sorrow. Not after, but in the midst of it. And in that, and the hope we have, we can rejoice. So we have to ask the question then, well, Paul also wrote this nice little phrase in Philippians 4, rejoice always, and again I say rejoice. So is Paul disobeying his own command by saying, hey, we're sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? And no, he's not disobeying his command. He's saying we can rejoice in the midst of our sorrow. And I'm going to show that to you in a few different passages. So if you want to turn to First Peter uh, 1, we'll see it first in this passage. Jacob already read it, but I want to read part of it again. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an, an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be re revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see what Peter's doing? He says, we have all these reasons to rejoice. Our salvation is not threatened by this world. So we have every reason to keep rejoicing. We have every reason to keep hoping. But notice what he says in verse 6. In this we rejoice. In the hope of our salvation, we rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, we're grieved by various trials. The same root word is sorrowful. We have grief in this world. So, so Peter's saying that we, we exist in this tension of sorrowful yet always rejoicing. We see it as well in, in uh, Romans, in Romans 7 through 9. And, and you don't have to turn there, I'm kind of going to jump through this. But in Romans 7, Paul's recounting um, how he has this tension between his inner man that's been. Um, uh, renewed by Christ, and how he has this flesh that keeps warring against the renewed man. And in, in verse 24 of chapter 7, he says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul is experiencing sorrow and grief 
in his sin. He sees his sin and it makes him sorrowful. But that catapults him into Romans 8, one of the most loved chapters in the New Testament, and rightfully so, because it, it recounts for us the, sure, the surety we have in our salvation, the hope that we have in our salvation. And Paul basically goes on a rejoicing escapade uh, all through chapter 8, talking about the hope we have in Christ. And it culminates with a very familiar passage. In verse 35, he says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we see this climax of rejoicing in Paul. And we often stop there. We, we, we like to read Romans 8 and we stop at verse 39. And, and it, it's a good passage and it causes us to rejoice. But just look at the next verse. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So Paul exalts in his salvation. He's, he's so excited about his salvation. He rejoices in his salvation. But as he rejoices in his salvation, it causes him sorrow thinking about his fellow kinsmen who are lost, who don't know Christ. And he says he wishes he could bear their own curse that they would be saved. He says he has unceasing anguish and great sorrow. So we see this coexisting of sorrow and joy in Paul's life. One, one more passage. In Matthew 5, uh, the Beatitudes is probably also a very familiar passage. Jesus is preaching. And at the end of the Beatitudes, he says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Persecution naturally causes grief. In the next verse, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now you might be wondering, how does this tie into what the world needs to see? Why, why is this couched under the, uh, under the kind of caveat of, this is how we display the gospel to the world? We'll look at the very next verse. Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? You are the light of the world, a city set on, on a hill that cannot be hidden. So Christ goes from suffering and rejoicing in our suffering straight into our witness to the world. And I don't think that's coincidental. He's implying that our suffering, our rejoicing, even in the midst of suffering, will be a light to the world will be the salt to the world. Like I said before, the world knows how to grieve. The world has seen grief for the last, well, the history of the world. And the world knows how to have joy when things are good, when things are going well, when, when promotions are getting handed out, when bonuses are getting handed out. People rejoice. And that's natural. That's normal. And if we as Christians only rejoice when things are good and are only grieved when things are bad, we look just like the world. But what looks different and what will stick out to the world 
is if we can have sorrow and joy at the same time, if we can rejoice even in the midst of our sorrow. And you may not have thought about it in these terms, but this is likely why you like so many of the hymns that we like. I'm not going to quote it for you, but pretty much the whole song of how deep the Father's love for you is a lament of our sin. It's a grieving of our sin, but it's a rejoicing in the fact that Christ would die for us even though we're sinful. His love is so great that He would die for us even when we're sinful. Now I will read a couple examples for you. One from the Solid Rock. Listen to these couple verses. When darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, His covenant, His blood support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, He then is all my hope and stay. Or from It Is Well With My Soul, one of the most beloved hymns of the church. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. The last one, probably from a lesser well-known poem written by William Cowper, someone very familiar with grief. He writes, Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower. And each of those give us a glimpse into sorrow that is very real. Grief that is very much experienced. But they each also have with it that tangible rejoicing even in the midst of our sorrow. So a couple questions to ask then. What hinders our ability to be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? I think the first is our own effort. When we just try to conjure this up, we can't do it. We can't naturally rejoice in our suffering. We have to press into the power of God, into the Holy Spirit, into His Word. I think another joy killer in the midst of sorrow is when we seek to find that middle ground. When we just try to go through the day and and kind of manage our emotions. I think we often conflate the command to be sober-minded as being stoic or have a tepid emotional life. And I know that I'm kind of a passionate person and and maybe you're not built that way. But sometimes I think we we confuse self-control with uh, not letting our emotions be voiced and talked about and um, experienced. And it's hard. It takes time and energy. And most of us are busy with, with kids and jobs and lots of life stress. And so it's easier to just strike that middle ground and kind of control our emotions as we experience hard things than it is to see the brokenness of the world and grieve it. And then to go to God's Word and to see reasons to rejoice and rejoice. It's easier just to keep moving than it is to grieve and take our sorrow to God. So how do we do this? How do we strike this uh, or live in this tension? Well, I'm just going to refer you to David's sermons on 1 Samuel about grieving because they've been super helpful as I've been listening to them. And David has highlighted that grieving is such an important part of the Christian life and voicing our grief is, is a necessary step in experiencing joy. So I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those. I have not even quoted from the Psalms. Countless Psalms follow this model of 
bringing our griefs before the Lord and rejoicing in the salvation that He's brought. Another way we do this, if you're still in 2 Corinthians 6, you can turn, turn over a page or two to 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul says, 4, 16-18, he says, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is re- being renewed day by day. So Paul's saying, even though we're being destroyed every single day, we are renewed every day. How? How, Paul? How are you renewed? He says, for our light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So Paul, so Paul lives in this tension. He experiences grief, and yet he looks to eternity. He looks to the reward he has in Christ, the joy that he'll have in Christ, and he keeps pressing on. He doesn't just see the world through the lens of the world. He sees the world with renewed eyes and with renewed hope. So just to summarize all of this, I'm just going to read a quote from N.T. Wright because he uh, describes this probably better than I can. He says, The extraordinary balance of this passage reveals the mark of genuine Christian authenticity. Christians sometimes talk as if life were simply a matter of glory, of celebration, of the Lord providing all our needs and everything going forward without a hitch. Nobody actually lives like that all the time, of course, and the effort to go on believing it in the face of evidence uh, of the evidence can produce a double life with all the dangers of hypocrisy and shallowness. Equally, some people, including Christians, react so forcibly to a grinning, shallow, falsely cheerful spirituality that they make out everything as gloomy and filled with trouble, a constant round of difficulty and frustration. Christian maturity gets the balance right. It isn't so much a bit of this and a bit of that. It's a lot of both at the same time. And part of the task not only of being a Christian but of leading a Christian community is to be able to grieve and celebrate at the same time. To share the pain and the joy of the world and indeed the tears and the laughter of God. So as we celebrate Advent, as, as, we, as we are probably burdened by sorrow and we, we think about the coming of Christ, we do have every reason to rejoice. But we are still burdened by grief. Most of us can probably think of multiple things in our life that are causing us grief. And the beauty of this time of Advent is we can take time to take those things to the Lord as we consider the fact that God didn't leave us in our sin. God didn't leave us hopeless. He came to this earth to dwell among us. That's why I love some of the, the songs we sing around Christmas is because they have this built into them as well. They have lament over this, the, the way the world is today. But they rejoice in the fact that God sent His Son to rescue us out of our bondage and our sin. So I hope and I pray that as we, as we live here, in, well, as you live here in Leavenworth and as we go back to Spokane, that we would live as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, that we would not ignore the grief of the world, but that we would show them a a reason to rejoice that would make them want to know what that salt and light is in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word, God. We thank You that You have sent Your Son uh, to dwell among us, to create a way that we could be reconciled to You and and be in Your presence. God, we, we are often burdened by sorrow and grief, We pray that you would give us your spirit, that you would help us um, 
to rejoice even in the midst of our sorrow. Help us to look not just at the world, but at the things to come, Lord, and see that there is hope, that you are working in this world, that you have not left it on its own, but that you are at work and that you're using your people at the church to reconcile all things to yourself, Lord. And we just pray that we would be faithful to that task, Lord, that we would encourage one another in that task, that we would grieve with one another, but that we would also rejoice with one another. And in your son's name we pray, amen. And then sing one more song.